Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Later, we'll hear from Mary Lawler about Frontline Defenders, an organisation based in Ireland that helps human rights defenders around the world. But we begin in Gaza, where three weeks of Israel's Operation Protective Edge has left 1,100 Palestinians dead, including more than 220 children. On the Israeli side, 53 soldiers and three civilians have died. And despite diplomatic efforts involving the United States, the United Nations, the European Union and regional powers like Egypt, Qatar and Turkey, there's no sign of an end to the hostilities. Our correspondent, Ruan McCormick, has been reporting from Gaza and he joins me now from just inside the Israeli border. Ruan, what is the situation in Gaza right now? Well, it's extremely tense. <clears throat> the city is very much on edge, as it has been for the past uh, three weeks. Um, the last 24 hours felt like something of a nadir at ground level because the weekend began with uh, several lows. Um, Hamas uh, announced its 24-hour ceasefire. Israel had a 24-hour ceasefire. And the result was that for the first time in three weeks, there was, there was something approaching calm in the city. People felt that they could leave their homes for the first time. They went shopping. They caught up with friends and family, and they got a chance to, um, to see the, the destruction uh, all around them for the first time in many cases. Um, then yesterday, things escalated quite sharply when uh, eight children and two adults were killed uh, at a playground in uh, at a refugee camp in the city. Um, now, Israel denies that one of its missiles was to blame. It says that it, the the, uh, the fire came from a, a, a misfired uh, Hamas rocket, and Hamas, Hamas denies that. But it just it 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 really did some damage to the atmosphere. It really put people on edge. Uh, then, within a few hours of that, there was uh, this announcement from Benjamin Netanyahu there was going to be some sort of a an expansion of the ground operation, and almost immediately, more leaflets started to, to fall, and people received phone calls in the east and the north of the Strip, uh, telling them to leave their homes. And very quickly, we saw those orange flares light up the sky, and there was an extremely intense uh, bombardment overnight. Um, I, of all, I've been there for about ten days in all, and it was certainly the, the most intense I had seen. Uh, it continued for about six hours. Every ten minutes, there was a, a missile or a drone strike or an F-16 strike. Um, so, so conditions are extremely difficult. Of course, it was Eid on on, uh, on yesterday was Eid, this, the, the Muslim uh, feast to mark the end of Ramadan, and so people had started to leave their homes. They had started to uh, go out to shops and visit family, but that was that was all um, put off within a few hours because there was this escalation then last night. After three weeks of this, what is the psychological condition of the civilians in Gaza that you've met? People are facing a conundrum. There are very few people you will speak to who don't want the fighting to end, who don't want the bombardment to end. At the same time, there are very few people who will say they want it to end uh, without any of Hamas's conditions being met, and specifically one condition, that the blockade of the Gaza Strip be lifted. Um, there, there, there's, there very strong, there's very strong support for the lifting of the, of the blockade and a very strong sense that people don't want a ceasefire for the sake of a of a ceasefire, notwithstanding the, the terrible toll this is having on people's lives. It's, it's, it's a, a strange sort of terror living in an environment like that where you, you, you may decide to stay at home, but you know that your home could be struck. You know that your home could be uh, next to a house that would, that, that would be struck. Um, you're not sure whether you can go out because you might walk down the wrong street at the wrong time. So the terror is everywhere. There's nowhere to go. There's a feeling of helplessness. Um, you, you see children who are in shock. 
uh, who, who've gone completely silent. I was at Shifa Hospital yesterday when those uh, eight, the eight bodies of eight children were brought into the hospital and you had many scores of people injured in that same attack. And there were children just sitting around motionless, staring off into space. This is taking a, a huge uh, toll on people. Um, and, and daily life has, in effect, come to an end. I mean, people, do, people can't go out. The shops are closed, except during these uh, brief lulls we've had over the last few days. Generally, daily life has ended. People can't go to work. People can't go out driving. There's no traffic. Normally, the Gaza Strip, and particularly Gaza City, is choked with the traffic. It's an extremely densely populated area, and the streets have been deserted for much of the last uh, three weeks. As you said, uh, Ruan, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, has announced an expansion of the campaign, and he's also warned that this could be a drawn-out campaign. Is there any sign of an end in sight at all? There has been a feeling in the last few days that both sides are, are, are moving towards uh, at least some sort of a temporary humanitarian ceasefire. There were those several lows over the weekend, um, even though there was a sense that both sides were speaking at cross-purposes and, and that... Uh, and, and that there was you know, bad faith on both sides, charges of bad faith on both sides over alleged breaches of those um, human, temporary humanitarian ceasefires. There has been uh, momentum towards some sort of a temporary truce, be it 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. We hear today that uh, the uh, Palestinian Authority, that Mahmoud Abbas was in Egypt, where he met President Sisi, uh, and, and they, they put together some sort of a 24-hour truce. He announced that Hamas uh, agreed with this. Hamas spokesman immediately denied this and said that they they didn't agree with it. Um, so it, it, it's 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 difficult to see where where the agreement is going to come. The problem is that you have two different camps, and you've no you've no interlocutor, you've no um, you've no mediator, much like you did uh, with uh, much like you did in 2012 when President Morsi of Egypt was close to Hamas and he was able to. Uh, represent them in effect. You have Qatar and Turkey who have open lines of communication with Hamas, but they're distrusted by Egypt, Egypt, uh, sorry, by Israel. Israel doesn't want to speak to them. Um, and so you've, you, you don't have, you don't have somebody in the role of Morsi who can act as a, a mediator, who can act as a, a representative of Hamas's positions and interests around the table. And that's been one of the very big problems that they've faced uh, over the, the last couple of weeks. You mentioned this escalation, the, the, the remarks by Benjamin Netanyahu last night that we could be facing into a drawn-out conflict. Um, we, we'll see. It, it was striking that the escalation in the ground operation last night followed the deaths of 10 Israeli soldiers. Um, you remember that when the ground operation first began about 10 days ago, that also followed quite heavy losses uh, among Israeli soldiers. And so there's a sense that uh, what happened last night and what happened with the beginning of the ground operation was that Israel were saying, well, you've killed uh, 10 or more of our soldiers, now we're going to hit you back hard. Uh, if there is going to be a ceasefire agreement, what is the likely shape of it? Well, the contours are there already. You know, we know that Israel has two main demands. The first is that it be allowed to continue uh, searching for and destroying this network of tunnels uh, linking the Gaza Strip and southern Israel. Uh, it says that these tunnels are a grave threat to its security and that no uh, truce can be agreed unless it has permission to remain uh, in Gaza, on the Gazan side of the border until it's located and destroyed all of these tunnels. Um, it also wants the, what it calls the demilitarization of, of Gaza, 
um, the disarming of Hamas. Um, Hamas, for its part, has two, two demands. One is the lifting of the blockade, as I mentioned. The other is uh, the release of prisoners. All of the draft humanitarian ceasefire proposals we've seen so far have come up with a form of words that uh, whereby an agreement, a sort of a, a, an agreed uh, truce, a short-term truce of be, you know, perhaps one day, two or, or six, is agreed, but that discussions then begin, and these agreements set down the topics up for discussion, and generally those topics include uh, the uh, the uh, lifting of the, the, the blockade, measures that Egypt might take to open the Rafa crossing in the south. Uh, one of the biggest sticking points, however, was, and this wasn't included in John Kerry's proposal at the weekend, much to uh, Israel's annoyance, was that there was no mention of the demilitarization of of of, uh, of Gaza, Hamas in particular, and the uh, the uh, uh, the Israelis were uh, extremely put out by that. And one of the interesting sort of uh, diplomatic wrangles going on over the last few days has been the fallout from those Kerry proposals where uh, the Israeli government seems to be briefing quite heavily in the Israeli press that uh, John Kerry badly mishandled all of that and you have a quite a stern response coming back from the Americans. So that relationship too has been strained by what's been going on over the last few weeks. Uh, finally, Ruan, when uh, before this campaign began, Hamas was, whatever about its military condition, it was in a politically weakened state. After this is over... Is it likely to be stronger or weaker politically? I think a lot depends on how Mahmoud Abbas emerges from th- this latest round of diplomatic discussions. If if he manages to uh, emerge as the broker uh, of a ceasefire agreement um, arising out of these discussions he's having uh, in Egypt uh, and his discussions with Hamas and Islamic Jihad, then he could be enhanced uh, and his position as Palestinian leader could be enhanced um, but you're right, the, the Hamas as an organization was politically very much weakened going into this. It had lost um, its close ally, President Morsi, in Egypt, and that had resulted in the closing of the uh, the border crossing, which was at Rafa, which was really lucrative and important to Hamas because it used to levy taxes on imports through, those, uh, through the border. Um, so it had lost regional allies. It had, in effect, in, in the past few months, handed over to uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, um, the civil administration of, of the Gaza Strip, notwithstanding the fact that it, it, it won the elections there in 2006. So it was very much in a politically weakened position. Um, if Mahmoud Abbas emerges as the broker of the ceasefire, he could be enhanced. Um, but uh, it, you get a very strong sense on the streets of, of, uh, of Gaza that there's very strong support for Hamas, uh, and that by reminding people of, of its, its, uh, its, its prime role on the Strip as, as the defender of the, uh, of the Gazan people as it sees it, it, it too may well emerge enhanced, uh, notwithstanding uh, any, uh, the terms of any ceasefire agreement that might be reached. Ruan McCormack, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Standing up for human rights and speaking out against oppression is a dangerous business, and human rights defenders all over the world face the threat of persecution, imprisonment, torture, and sometimes death. Frontline Defenders is an organisation based in Ireland that tries to protect human rights defenders at risk, focusing on fast, practical support. Last year, Frontline Defenders helped hundreds of human rights defenders in more than 70 countries. And I'm joined now by its founder and executive director, Mary Lawler. Mary, you're very welcome to Worldview. Thank you. What exactly is a human rights defender? 
A human rights defender is somebody who works to promote and protect the human rights of other people in accordance with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and they do so non-violently. There was a declaration adopted by the UN in 1998 after 13 years' negotiation, and uh, really from that time the term human rights defender has been used. What made you set up the organisation when you did... Well, I was in Amnesty International. I I was the director of Amnesty International and um, human rights defenders had always inspired me. I always remembered this little, tiny little brother Hector, he was called from Brazil, and he came in to me. uh, He was on a speaking tour in Ireland and he he was in with me telling me about the people he was trying to protect who were in the Amazon region. And I remember in the middle of it, he sort of half rose out of his chair. He was so taken up with with trying to get it across to me how how dreadfully oppressed these people were. And he suddenly realised he was half out of the chair and he said, forgive me, it's the spirit talking. And that, that, I think, is really what I think most about human rights defenders. They have this extraordinary spirit. They're very um, courageous, obviously. They, they, they are superheroes as far as I'm concerned. But there's something in them that I can never quite get my head around that, that uh, you know, gets them to do this work and gets them to continue doing this work despite the risks that they face. And it's not for themselves, it's for other people. And what kind of risks are you talking about that they face? Well, traditionally, you've always had the kind of risks like um, death threats and uh, defamation in the press, which is a big thing, and stigmatisation. Um, and they're sort of the, the and harassment. They're the kind of low level stuff. And then it moves on to, um, I suppose, you, you the, the more serious uh, kind of things like uh, spurious law charges against them. Uh, you can, they can also get, for example, in Peru um, with the mining industry at the moment, there are defenders with more than 30 um, law charges against them. And they've all been acquitted every time, but they keep bringing them. It's a way to neutralize them. And then um, the very serious ones, of course, are imprisonment, torture and extrajudicial killing or indeed um, targeting their family members or or and then less serious, I suppose, but still awful, losing their job. So there are many, many ways that governments and non-state actors target human rights defenders. Can you tell me a little more about that? Traditionally, we think in terms of oppression by governments, mm. but what are the kinds of non-state actors that, uh, that represent a threat to human rights defenders? Well, nowadays, you see, I think things are getting, apart from all of that, you know, the trend is developing towards... Um, restrictive legislation it's a kind of a it's it's a trying to regulate hum, uh, regulate NGOs and human rights defenders and civil society and uh, prevent them from doing their work and also uh, prevent them from for, for receiving money like you know foreign money um, and in in terms of um, non-state actors hired thugs uh, particularly in uh, in economic social and cultural rights we've seen a huge rise in human rights defenders being attacked because of the work on land rights or water rights or sanitation rights and also uh, extractive industries um, you know where mining companies will hire people or the government is in league with the mining company or police are working with the mining company so you get all that kind of quasi you know 
uh, stuff. And what can frontline defenders do to help? Well, we, our programme has grown up over the last 14 years. So it essentially is based on what they've said they need. So, for example, we have a security grants programme. And last year we gave 297 people security grants, over 800,000. And this can be for anything like, you know, walls around offices, steel bars in windows, CCTV, lawyers to defend cases, torture victims getting medical treatment, uh, all that kind of thing. Anything that will contribute to their security, we're happy to provide. We also do training in in security and personal, uh, sorry, training in personal security and risk assessment. So how you manage the risks you face and how you decrease your people attacking you and how you increase your capacity. And there we did 166 uh, people uh, got trained in personal security. And digital security, of course, is another huge area. So 314 people we trained in digital security. We see an awful lot of attacks against people like bloggers and journalists and just NGOs that are putting stuff on the web. And what kind of digital security measures can they take? Oh, well, we have this thing called security in a box. It's on our website in about 15 languages if anyone wants to improve their digital security. And it's it's it basically, it's a set of uh, uh, tools and uh, workbooks that show you how to pass store um, as information securely uh, and clearly for human rights defenders long before Snowden they were being hacked into and spyware and malware put on their on their on their you know systems we also we moved 113 people last year who were very much in danger that when they're very much in danger we moved them to somewhere a safe house in the region or to a neighboring country how do you do that who actually moves them well, it has, to, it has to happen very fast. So uh, we have like we've over 6,000 human rights defenders on our database. Now, they wouldn't all be at, uh, in, you know, active at the moment. Some of them would be burnt out. Some of them sadly have been murdered. 13 people have been murdered already this year. Um, and um, so if somebody is in extreme danger, I'll tell you the very, I'll tell you the story of the very first person that we moved, uh, Golden Misabiku. It was my first experience of moving somebody. I, it was only two years there in, in frontline. We had two staff. Golden Misabiku from Congo rang me up and said, Mary, they're closing in on me. I don't know what to do. Um, and I don't want to go back to prison. I, I, he was tortured before that. And I said to him, Golden, what can you do? And he said to me, well, he said, um, I don't know. I said, talk to somebody, talk to some of your colleagues and I'll ring you in half an hour. So I rang him in half an hour and he said he thought that they, if, if he could get money for a car quickly, he could use a little known border crossing and cross over the border. So at four o'clock in the morning, I got this wonderful call from him saying he was very happy that he had he had arrived. In Liberia also, Alosha's toe, we moved him in that and um, we got him, uh, we got the banks to open, looting was going on at the time and the money was used for a he hid under the beach um, and then after the nightly sweep because he was on a blacklist uh, was done he got the little boat and went to Cote d'Ivoire and from there we got a lorry for him to go to Ghana and from there he came over to Ireland You've got this 24 hour emergency phone line uh, tell me something about that well, it operates in English, French, Arabic, Spanish and Russian. And essentially, it's because we have this ethos of being fast and flexible. And I like to say furious as well um, at the atrocities. But uh, 
so if somebody is in real danger, they can contact us any time of the of the day. Now, to be honest, a lot of them still use the email, but we also have an emergency number and they all have ID cards, the people who are active that we have supported and the number is on that so they, they can call us. And then we do what we can. I mean, if they're in extreme danger, we have to get them to somewhere safe while we can plan something, you know. Um, are there any countries that it's especially difficult to help people in? Oh, yeah. Syria, for example, at the moment is really difficult. Um, obviously, there are closed countries like North Korea. China, we've seen uh, 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 an increase in the cases there this year, despite the fact that they've um, abolished re-education through labour. They're still doing the black jails and the actual re-education camps, so they're just using other channels. Um, I think, you know, you Honduras, I mean, the list is endless, you know, um, uh, but all, all we can do is to try and stay in contact with people that we know are really risking their lives for the rights of other people and support them um, in whatever we, way we can because they live lives of relentless stress and it's not only being able to provide practical support it's a moral support as well and solidarity and I always remember a quote I read once which was solidarity is the last weapon of the defenceless and I love that quote the uh, European Union and the United Nations and various other international organisations, they express solidarity with uh, human rights defenders and they are formally committed to promoting and defending human rights around the world. How good a job are they, are they doing? Well, under the Irish presidency in 2004, we, we managed to persuade the Irish government at that time to uh, make human rights defenders a priority of their presidency, which they did. And we wrote the consultation part pa- paper for the partners, which resulted in the EU guidelines on human rights defenders. And those guidelines are very good. They spell out the steps that the EU should take if human rights defenders are in danger. However, in practice, everyone has their own little list and everyone has their own strategic and political interests. So you will find them taking action in countries where it doesn't matter so much to their political and strategic interests. There's also the real problem of individual commitment. You know, some people are naturally interested in protecting human rights and some people aren't interested. So there's there's all sorts of variables. The, the UN, I mean, the UN um, has a special rapporteur on human rights to Defenders who travels and you know assesses the situation and reports and all of that, but again, you know, it's not the quickest organisation in the world. And with human rights defenders, you have to be very fast and you have to be very flexible in responding to their needs. And also, again, you know, you have all these regional blocks in the UN, and you have, for example, we saw it the other day with the resolution on Gaza. You have people going with their region and not looking objectively in my view at the situation. Can we speak briefly about uh, Gaza? It's obviously in the news right Mm. now. You've been there a number of times. Can you tell me your view of uh, what's going on there, but also that resolution you refer to, the UN Human Rights Council resolution, which condemned Israel? Well, um, I've been to Gaza three times. I... I, uh, it is an, an extraordinary place. It's a tiny little place. It's half the size of Louth. Louth. It's a strip of land. Just getting into it, it takes you hours. And the arrangements and everything are impossible. You know, Ban Ki-moon had a, a brilliant phrase yesterday um, where he said, there is no safe place. The people are trapped, besieged on a speck of land. 
And UNICEF came out and said that they, uh, uh, children were killed, mutilated, burnt and terrified. And I think, you know, when you hear the UN using that kind of emotive language, which is very un UN like, it says something, you know. Uh, I get carried away there. Uh, finally, finally, Mary, uh, if you look around the world now, uh, is the condition of human rights defenders getting better or getting worse? It's getting worse. There is a huge uh, shrinking of space for civil society, restrictive legislation coming in everywhere to regulate uh, NGOs, prevent them from registering or re-registering. This law of foreign agents, and it's cut and paste for repression. They're all learning from each other and they're all copying each other. Um, The uh, LGBTI community, uh, defenders of LGBTI rights are being targeted everywhere. this year, Haiti and yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, this year, Nigeria and Haiti have brought in in legislation, and it's a kind of a way of um, just um, it's a, used for political means and to distract attention part of the time. And uh, impunity is rife as well. And really, the situation, and as well as that, you have of the killings and you have the torture and you have all those other things. So it's it's a shrinking space. But we like to think that, the you know, it's a sign of the effectiveness of uh, human rights defenders that they are being repressed, because if they weren't making a difference, they wouldn't be repressed. And I would like to just say, just just on the resolution on on Gaza, which I meant to say, I, I read it very carefully last night. I saw that the the resolution condemned the killing of Israeli citizens. Um, I see no reason why the Irish government didn't support it. I think myself it is because that they just want to go with the wanted to go with the EU position on this and didn't want to offend the US. And it, 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 you know, on the website and in everything they say, they talk about our foreign policy. Uh, you know, it, it represents the values of who we are as a people. And if ever there was an own goal, this was it, because clearly the values of the Irish people are with the Palestinians. Ireland is a very small country. How effective can a small country be when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to human rights? Well, to be honest, Ireland has made a huge, um, huge uh, human rights defenders. Like, I mean, it is the Irish issue, uh, one of them. You know, they have other issues that they have taken on. But, I mean, they have ownership of human rights defenders. They have made a huge difference. They, it was because of them the EU guidelines on human rights defenders came in. It was because of them this funding from the EU to human rights defenders all around the world has come in. And that's a huge contribution. They were terrific at the UN Human Rights Council last year when they did this resolution on a civil society space. And the year before, when they did the resolution on human rights defenders, a much better resolution than it ever has. So they can, and and when they want to, uh, or when they choose to, maybe I should say, they can have a moral voice. You know, we're not a co- we were never a coloniser. We have a good record. We have good defence forces. They've never been, you know, guilty of some of the things other defence forces have been, and uh, peacekeepers, you know, have been guilty of. So, you know, we can hold our head up high. We are small and sometimes being small is actually more important uh, because you can, you know, you don't have any hard power which sure as hell has a lot of soft power. Mary Lawler, Executive Director of Frontline Defenders, thank you for joining us. And you can find out more about Frontline Defenders at frontlinedefenders.org.
That's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about some of our stories on irishtimes.com and contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>